Newmarket is a typical Ontario town with a history no different from its neighbors. Or is it? On episode 7 and the season 1 finale of Newmarket History. Up first, the history and stories of one of the oldest buildings in Newmarket. Its encounters with ghosts, murder, and everything else the town has witnessed over the last two centuries. Then, I save the best for last. Newmarket's greatest contribution to Canada that ties in multiple stories from the different episodes of this series. Newmarket's quest for responsible government caps off Season 1 of Newmarket History. As always, all that and so much more history, now. We've all heard the stories. The stories of the crazy stuff people used to do, usually under the influence of alcohol. Sure, some of them seem a little exaggerated, but we've all gotten pretty good at just nodding along. Hey, everyone has that family member or friend that, you know, used to really tear things up and have some fun after a few drinks. Maybe still do. I wonder, though, if people today could keep up with the people of old, particularly the Newmarket farmers in the early 1800s. They might be the reason the word Donnybrook even exists. Newmarket has had a long and perhaps sometimes distant relationship with alcohol. At one point, Newmarket had more bars than any other place in Canada. There were lots of breweries, taverns, and hotels for weary travelers and hardworking farmers looking to let loose. The town also had prohibition for longer than people may think. It wasn't until 1957 that Newmarket finally lifted its prohibition laws. I bet bars did quite well that year. But sometimes with alcohol comes a lot of trouble. No one knows that more than Robert Selby, Newmarket's first murder victim, who paid the ultimate price for someone's drunkenly deeds. And it happened right outside one of Newmarket's first taverns, and today, one of the oldest buildings in the town, Dye's Inn. Dye's Inn has witnessed it all, from murder to hauntings to the typical activities you encounter in a bar. If buildings could talk, this would be the one to listen to. So have an ear, because now I'm going to share the past of Dye's Inn. If you wanted to put Elton John's lyrics in the song Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting to Good Use, then might I suggest a backdrop of Main Street Newmarket in the year 1819 on a Friday or Saturday night. Farmers that worked in the fields all week would treat themselves at the bars at the end of the work week, and they partied like there was no tomorrow. If Hollywood created a movie about some of the things that happened on Main Street, the audience would pan the film for being too unbelievable. So Newmarket, you know, yes, we were dry for a long time, but we had a very wet beginning. It was like the Wild West here on Friday and Saturday night. People, uh, they, they used to be people whose job it was, because it was dirt and, and mud on Main Street, to come and pick people up and turn them over so that they wouldn't drown uh, in the mud because they were passed out. Farmers would, would work all week, I guess, and then on Friday night and Saturday night come in and have a pop and 
and they really had a pop. And of course, there was no law how much you could drink. Uh, there was no law. I mean, you could you could drink and drive, which means that if you could if you could get up in your horse, that's the reason why most people drove old horses because the horse knew its way home. So even if you didn't tell it how to get home, it would eventually get home. It was not uncommon at all to see women and children searching amongst the mess of passed out bodies for their husband or father. And you wonder why the temperance movement and prohibition eventually became a thing. Newmarket might have had a drinking problem, but it sure seemed like they all had a grand old time. Well, the men at least. And at the time, owning a tavern wasn't the most honorable of jobs but I'm sure the lads getting ripped every night took no issue with the position. But it wouldn't be long before the excessive drinking in town led to an issue of seismic proportions. For one man, David Cummings, he clearly misinterpreted what Elton John meant by set this town alight, and it resulted in the first murder in Newmarket right outside of Dye's Inn. So, so back then, this was long before Prohibition, uh, what I guess the story was that uh, they were having a nice old drink up and some guy had gotten a new gun and thought he was going to demonstrate how well the gun worked. So he just took out the gun and fired out the window and some dude was riding, riding by on a, on a horse and he shot him through the head. That was our first murder. Cummings' actions resulted in the death of Robert Selby, who was simply passing by. Murder was not common at the time in the area, which is maybe why Cummings was never convicted. But surely, the guilt lived with him the rest of his life. The murder devastated the tavern. It changed ownership multiple times after the incident, although it is unclear as to who really owned the building when because of confusing ownership records. Eventually, it became a private residence, amongst other things. By the time 1985 rolled around, the inn was being used for business purposes. But our story of Dai's Inn doesn't end there. The building is known to have weird, unexplainable events occur. The History Hound added Dai's Inn to his ghost tour because of the bizarre events that occur in the building. A former owner told the Hound that odd things happen with the electricity, specifically with the electricity flickering off and on. But when an electrician was called in to fix the problem, no issues could be identified and it was impossible for the owner to recreate any of the events that had happened. The building also has a history with strange cats appearing and then vanishing into thin air. Kind of like how they suddenly appear from the basement during dinner time and then disappear again to the basement when the meal ends. Spooky stuff. In conversations the hound had with the former owner of the building, he was told that... The lady, she really got into, um, you probably read this in my article, she really got into feeding a cat. She didn't have a cat of her own, but feeding this cat. She mentioned to people that this cat came to visit, and they'd say, I don't think so. You know, I don't think there's any cats coming to visit. So three interesting things. First of all, it had rained. She watched the cat walk through the garden up to take a drink. She watches the cat walk away. No footprints. Cats are well documented as being majestic and curious creatures in fairy tales. So maybe that explains the cat's mysterious appearances. Then again, I know my little tubby kitty will surely come back to haunt me for sometimes being a little late to his regimented feeding schedule. Now, I am not one to believe in ghosts, 
but I do recall my past science teacher saying that energy can't be created or destroyed. That and how I should quit science, I'm tired of you in my class. If energy still exists when we die, I cannot explain where it goes or how it manifests itself. Could the ghost of Robert Selby still exist? Or someone else that died? Or maybe what we see as a haunting has a simple explanation that has not been discovered yet. There is actually more to our story about a possible haunting at dies, which actually sounds like a great Newmarket Halloween attraction. Get on it, Town Council. The details are explained in Robert Terence Carter's Stories of Newmarket and Old Ontario Town. The owner purchased the building in the early 80s and completely renovated the inside to accommodate her both living and running her business there. After an employee informed her of peculiar happenings, she finally said enough was enough and invited an Ontario Science Centre investigator in with a device meant to detect ghosts. The readings went wild by the stairs and confirmed that there was some ghost activity in the house. The ghost seemed like less of a threat though and more of a thorn in her side. Later, while the owner was working one evening, her calculator started acting up which was the last straw. As quoted by Carter in his novel, with a strong voice, the owner exclaimed, I have to run a business in this house, and I have 35 salespeople. I have a great interest in keeping busy selling houses, and that can't be done if these distractions continue. Followed by, If you keep this up, there's going to be a battle. And the ghost never bothered her again. Dyes Inn is not the only place in Newmarket said to be haunted. Many residents may already know about the ghost in the Grey Goat restaurant. Other locations include suspicions of specters in Pickering College and in Robert Simpson's old building where a brutal murder occurred in the basement. 200 years ago, people really believed in spirits and ghosts and keeping them happy. Maybe it was just hope or wishful thinking that a family member who had passed on was visiting them. It could be a load of hogwash, but many of us do simply just enjoy a good ghost tale. No matter where you stand on the ghost debate, Dies In is full of unexplained events, and maybe thanks in part to its violent beginnings. The beauty of Dies In is that it offers us a lens into the past to learn of what Newmarket was like. A town with sloppy, booze-fueled weekends, unfortunate murders, and astonishing apparitions. So what's next, guys? Like the ghostly energy around you, I wait for what's next. We've covered a lot of ground so far in this podcast series. Mostly in the 19th century from the time of early settlement to the meteoric rise of William Mulock in the early 1900s. Newmarket has seen a lot, both good and bad. But as the first season of this series comes to a close, I must discuss the greatest contribution Newmarket has made to Canada. A mid-19th century achievement that took many difficult decades to reach. And when I say Newmarket, I mean the people who through thick and thin never lost sight of their end goal. Responsible government. Responsible government. It has a nice ring to it, wouldn't you say? It sounds like a good thing, and it definitely is. 
It is a government that actually represents the people, and not just the ruling elites. It would be like your child's house league soccer or hockey convener actually addressing parent concerns and listening to the people, instead of just ensuring their kid is on the best team. So sit back and enjoy our last story together for now, and gain a new appreciation for calling yourself a new marketin. New market tight? New market something. I don't know. Cue the music. We have already learned through this podcast that Newmarket Quakers and farmers were at the heart of the 1837 rebellion that shook the British colony. People were angry with the government, and they stormed into Toronto like it was a Best Buy on Black Friday and wreaked all kinds of havoc. They were right to be peeved and took up arms after more peaceful attempts for a responsible government failed. Here's a little refresher from the history hound on why there was so much anger. Well, I, I told you the seeds were planted as far as the Quakers were concerned with the War of 1812 because they then realized that every, every promise ever made to them was being broken. I think that the seeds for rebellion among Americans and uh, former Americans and, uh, and British people, I think that was probably planted at that time because they realized that the government was totally doing whatever they wanted. As more Americans immigrated to the British colony searching for a better life, they learned that the colony was lacking in some areas. Villages and towns had no power to make decisions on what they needed. Often there was some crusty old retired military dude in charge of the municipal politics, and he could care less about the needs of the people. Hmm. So, we had a government that did whatever they wanted, never listened, and had no accountability. That sounds like a recipe for disaster, or the mantra of half of the owners in the NFL. The problem was that so many people, mostly the ruling and corrupt family compact, didn't see how anyone could be unhappy in Canada. You know, they've been trying to get rid of the family compact for, for years, for 30 years or more, and nothing. We have a rebellion, nothing. And also, uh, remember, you know, we always talk about the rebels, but there's an awful lot of people who thought everything was just hunky-dory. The Robinson family thought everything was just absolutely perfect. How could you want a better system? You know, we don't even, we don't even have to have a legislature. We could just have dinner and, uh, and solve everything. But everything wasn't peachy, which is why so many demanded responsible government. Basically, instead of the British monarchy, which was an ocean away, and their family compact buddies calling the shots, the people could now elect individuals to represent them and their interests in an elected assembly. The colonists had more control and more say in matters. That is responsible government. As the history hound hilariously put it to compare what the government must have been like in the first few decades of the 1800s, imagine if our prime minister came out today and said, so I'm in charge, my immediate family is going to be my cabinet, my close buddies will assume roles like premier and finance minister, and, you know, we'll just make all the decisions over dinner without your opinion. I think there'd be a riot. I think all uh, Ontario wanted responsible government. I think what happened was that, you know, whether you call what's in the United States responsible government or not, uh, I think they saw an example next door of a government that was being run supposedly 
for the people and by the people. And I think they wanted that. I think, and, and, and if you take a look at world history, we have this tendency to look at Canadian history, but if you take a look at what's happening around the world, there was a movement everywhere about that time for responsible government, for, for a government that appeared to be by the people. So, in conclusion, the people were ticked, and the rebellion achieved nothing. What a time to be alive. It's now time to meet the two gents who led the charge for responsible government, Robert Baldwin and Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine, and their ties to Newmarket. Baldwin and Lafontaine. It kind of sounds like an old-school cop drama show about an unlikely pairing that kicks butt together. And in many ways, they did kick some butt. They worked together and supported each other the best they could. After all, they both wanted reform and change. Baldwin led the charge for responsible government in the English-speaking province that would one day become Ontario. Lafontaine took the lead in the French province that would one day become Quebec. See, the French and English can get along, as long as it's not on the ice. They eventually grabbed control of Parliament in 1848 with their reform movement and established responsible government. But they had some hurdles to clear before getting to that point. Baldwin represented Newmarket for many years, but in 1841, he left the seat so his pal Lafontaine could run for it. Lafontaine found himself without a seat due to corruption in the electoral process, and Baldwin decided to help him out. He persuaded the people of Newmarket to vote for the Frenchmen, and they did in decisive fashion. The election wasn't even close. Newmarket and the riding elected a French-Canadian, during a time when the English and French didn't necessarily love one another, all in the name of responsible government. Baldwin found a seat elsewhere, and all was good. Fast forward a little bit, though, and it was time for Lafontaine to return the favor. In an 1842 election, Lafontaine easily won the riding of Newmarket, but Baldwin lost his seat in eastern Ontario. So the Frenchman found his pal a nice, comfortable, and easily winnable seat in northern Quebec. And Baldwin won. And the funny thing is, he didn't speak a lick of French. Or he tried to speak French, and the people couldn't bear to listen to his horrible accent, and begged him to just speak English. A very relatable experience for me. So, we had a French-Canadian reform leader representing an English riding, and an English-Canadian reform leader representing a French riding. Now there's a mouthful. It's just so crazy to comprehend. It would be like if an English-Canadian with no French coached the Montreal Canadiens, and a French-Canadian took the reins of the Maple Leafs. And all of this was possible because the people of Newmarket backed the two gentlemen. Their loyalty and dedication to achieving responsible government was unmatched throughout the colony and unwavering. This is why historians say Newmarket is the birthplace of responsible government, because without the help of the residents, Baldwin and Lafontaine may not have been able to accomplish what they did and free the colony from the iron grip of the government at the time. Their achievements may have even spared the colony further uprisings that could have led to more political turmoil and tough times for the people. We can leave the whole rebellion uprising stuff to the Americans. But what a feat, and what a way to cap off this first season of Newmarket history. Another tale that solidifies the legacy of the town of Newmarket. 
Can we top a story like this? Or any of the stories so far in this series? I bet we can. And hopefully, more stories like this will arrive in time. Thanks for listening. Best of luck, and see you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of New Market History. I would like to send a heartfelt thank you to the History Hound for offering me his time and knowledge during the creation of this project. To learn more about the town's history, check out the Newmarket Public Library's history section, or read the History Hound's weekly articles in Newmarket Today. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time on Newmarket History.